a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Coming up on this week's show, Atari makes another big purchase. Build your own Xbox 360. And we get the story of Rare's biggest secret. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, have you seen The Secret History of Mac Gaming, the new expanded edition? Now, if you weren't aware that the Mac played a massive part in the evolution of video gaming, you need to check this book out, showcasing the Mac's gaming credentials in meticulous detail. You can check that out in the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our wonderful friends at PCBWay. Now, the weather might be getting a bit cooler. Maybe you're working indoors on a retro project or two over the autumn and winter. You know, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototyping service, low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do services like 3D printing and injection molding. And they're big supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 395, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ashley Kingston. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast. Now, you might be thinking, hang on a minute, who was that there in the middle? Now, obviously, Ash, a good friend of the show. Our patrons all know you, Ashley. You're always one of the best parts of the hangout. Always get involved in it so well. And obviously, we had you on... Oh, about two months ago now, didn't we, to join us for the news in one episode? It's even longer than that. I think it was uh, January when I was on. Was oh, it? God. Wow. This yeah. year's flying by. <laughs> <laughs> I think we only had him on last month. Um, but then we got a message this morning off Ravi. He's, uh, he's full of the lurgy. He's there in bed with his, uh, his hot water bottle and his heating blasting, even though it's like... 30 degrees here at the moment, so he's definitely not well. But luckily, uh, Ash, last minute, offered to step in and take Ravi's place on the podcast this week. So we hugely appreciate that, because I know you're actually away in a in a hotel at the moment, aren't you, for work? Yeah, I'm working away at the moment. So in the week, I'm uh, 270 miles away from my family. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm uh, travelling back at the weekend to see my family. So... So I kind of thought, what else do I do on an evening other than help you guys out with your podcast? We enjoy having you on the podcast whenever you come on, Ash. So Thank it's you very a much. Pleasure, pleasure to, to be to here. Talk to you. And uh, thanks for joining us for the news this week. Now, of course, we have got Ravi in the second half of the podcast, though, because he's going to be bringing us a panel from his uh, travel in Norway last month. Now, I'm wondering whether that's where he got the, uh, we always get this, like conference flu. Mm-hmm. After you've been to like a big retro gaming event. Yeah. Always come out with a bit of a sore throat. I wonder where that's where he got it from. Uh, but he did a great few panels out there at Norway at Retro Mesa last month. Now, this one is with uh, someone we've had on the podcast before, um, Paul Makacek. Um, not only 
a, a legend at Rare, but also a wonderful guy as well. Uh, Joe and I have shared many drinks at the bar with him at events over the last couple of years. And uh, today, Ravi did a panel all about the stop and swap trick that Rare were working on. Now, this has kind of been the, the thing of legend in the gaming industry for the last 25 years or so. Either of you guys familiar with what the, the stop and swap is? Yeah, I've I'd, I'd not heard of it up until uh, recently, um, but I think I've heard similar stories, but I think there were more myths uh, with yeah. other other machines and other consoles. Yeah, I, I'm kind of similar with, to Ashley. I've, I've heard of it, and, you know, obviously Paul did the uh, the kind of rares version of the Game Boy just before the Game Boy came out. And yeah, presented, that never got released. Yeah, that never got released, and then he did the stop and swap as well. Um, so some incredible, you know, technical work from Paul Mekacek, but this is really, really interesting. But my understanding was essentially it was a, you would be playing a game. It was, you know, they had, they kind of had like Donkey Kong 64 and Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie in mind for it, but you would be playing the game and there'd be a point in it where you would kind of swap cartridges over and it'd unlock mm. in-cartridge DLC. So, you know, uh, what comes to my mind was as a Game Boy Advance game, which came out you know, about five, six years after these games called Golden Sun. And there was a Golden Sun sequel. And there was a, there was an element of, uh, it was an RPG, but you could carry your characters over to the second game. And you had to do yeah. like a stop and swap in that, you know, you'd take the cartridge out and it would kind of like, you know, send them all over. So I guess, you know, and that was a Nintendo game. So maybe they ripped it off or, you know, I don't really know, but that's the only thing that I can think of. Well, I mean, yeah, so basically he was working on this technology right there. So what you do is you'd be playing, say, for example, you know, Donkey Kong 64. Mm. You'd collect some hidden gems in the game. And then what you do is you'd actually turn your N64 off right. really quickly, swap the game cartridge, turn it back on, oh, wow. and then it would unlock content in another game. So basically it would transfer the items to a second game, obviously another rare game. Yeah. But there were some problems with this. I mean, obviously the main thing that they didn't want people doing is swapping the cartridge while the console is on. Mm. Of course, we all know that can uh, be very bad for the hardware. Um, but the original design of the N64 basically meant that when you turn the N64 off, it would keep the data in RAM mm. for about five seconds after the console was turned off. So that was enough time to quickly change your cartridge and turn it back on. But then when they revise the hardware, basically that RAM got cleared straight away, so meaning that it wasn't really feasible. There must have been some kind of like power leak or something where it, a capacitor mm. was still giving power to the RAM chips or something yeah. for it to work like that. So it's, it's a bit of a strange one, really. It's more of an exploit that they, they've come across uh, to, get it to, to get it to actually work. So I'm, I'm intrigued as to whether it was a deliberate design feature of the N64 or whether it was just a, you know, a, an error of capacitor leaking or something like that. I mean, it's been part of the like the rare legacy for many years, and they've kind of played on it a bit. I mean, some of the items were actually in Banjo Kazooie that were intended for stop and swap. You know, they actually left in the game. There's like the ice key, and there's like coloured eggs in there as well, but you couldn't use those without like cheats or hacking devices. You couldn't collect them. And then when the Xbox Live Arcade versions were in there, they uh, they also put that content in there, and they've, put, they've kind of been parodied you know, in other rare games as a bit of an Easter egg or a joke over the years as well. So it's really interesting. And uh, we hear from Paul, basically, what happened, the full story about that. And also Nintendo, as you can imagine, weren't too happy with it and asked them to remove it. <laughs> so we'll hear all about that as well uh, with this uh, really interesting panel, all about the rare stop and swap. Because I know Paul Makachek has actually been going on 
some forums over the last couple of years to basically try and put the story straight. Mm. But he said that no one ever believes that he's really from Rare and they don't believe his side of the story. <laughs> like, <laughs> Even no, you're he's not the real it. Paul Macajack. <laughs> yeah, so we guarantee we haven't used any voice cloning software on this. Um, even though I was tempted to do that for Ravi today, but, you know, we tried that a few months ago, didn't work very well. AI Ravi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we'll, we'll leave him in the cupboard, Robot Ravi. Um, but this is a really good panel with Paul Macajack from Rare giving us the story of uh, Rare's biggest secret, the stop and swap trick and uh, what that would have all been about. He's coming up on the show in around 45 minutes from now. Now, it has been a very busy week in the world of retro gaming. And of course, the first half of the podcast is where we bring you up to speed on what's been going on retro-wise from over the last seven days. And you guys must have been seeing this head- headline on all the places that you visit like I have. It's been all over my uh, social media platform, timelines. It's been on forums that I go on. This is Atari have made a very big purchase over the last week. And this one seems to have really split the community down the middle. They've bought Atari Age. I'm curious to see if we're split down the middle now, if we're mm. uh, pro-war, you know, <laughs> gone <laughs> with it. Um, yes, it's interesting because of, you know, I, I, I was reading all about this earlier on and I, you know what, I think this one went way over my head. They bought Night Dive Studios earlier this yeah. year as well for $10 million. I knew they'd bought Moby Games, which I always thought was a, a strange move, but, you know, fair enough. Uh, but now, yeah, Atari Age, which is my understanding is like, I think it's like 25 years old now, Atari Age, and it's one of the oldest, like, gaming websites that's still going, um, which is, you know, amazing. Um, and it is still going to be going. And the founder of Atari Age, um, Albert, uh, is it Yarusso? Yeah. He is going to essentially be on uh, Atari's bankroll now on their payroll um, because if they've bought his website and he's now uh, becoming, I think his official title is like Atari's historian or something. Yeah, yeah he's going to be the historian. You know, Ravi pointed out that there was a few negative comments and stuff like that about it. I think go for it. You know, if, you, mm. if you've, you've done this yourself, yes, with volunteers and moderators and stuff like that for 25 years, I guess it's like if somebody was to say to me, you know, 20 years time when the retro was 25 years old and let's say Microsoft tried to buy you but keep you as the you know the manager of it he'd go, oh, you sell out Joe <laughs> you know if you'd been on you know been doing it for that long like yeah, of course if Bill Gates is listening we're well open yeah we're open to negotiations Bill um but but I'm, I'm not going to sit here I mean I'm not going to sit here and say I wouldn't consider it do you know what I mean yeah. I think for me, I think probably what people are most worried about is, you know, with it being an independent website, I think they're just yeah. worried that Atari put any kind of spin or, you know, any any kind of pressure on what gets mm. talked about in the in the rooms mm. and everything else on it. And, and I think the other thing is, I mean, obviously we, we know Atari have got a bit of a strange investment uh, path in the past and things like that. And, you know, it's like I keep wondering, are we going to get adverts of Bitcoin on here? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the Atari age page or something. So I think that's probably why it's splitting the community so much. I mean, if you take it to you know my my love sort of the Amiga forums and things like that, if they were bought out by whoever happens to own Commodore's IP these days, which to be honest I lose mm. track. Uh, you know, again, it's the same thing. Are you suddenly going to get a load of influence in what's an open community? You know, it's, you make a good comparison there because actually there were a couple of Amiga forums. It was AmigaWorld.net and Amiga.org that were bought by the retailer Amiga Kit 
a few years ago. I think they own them now. All right. Um, yeah, so I've got a feeling that, you know, they're kind of corporate owned these days, but the, kind of the style of those sites hasn't changed all that much. But obviously, I mean, I imagine, you know, of course, Atari Age is probably, you know, definitely top five kind of biggest retro gaming forums on the internet. Been going since 1998, and it's more than just a forum as well, isn't it? It's a really big community around, mm. you know, it's passionate about homebrew and it's, you know, collecting games and Often a lot of these projects that I see on there, for example, the uh, the Atari Jaguar flashcard, you know, stuff like that, and Atari Jaguar homebrew games and ports, they often start their life on this forum. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, seeds being planted for homebrew stuff, it is definitely one of the, the go-to places. And I, I imagine that is the concern, that now it's owned by essentially a big corporation, is the element of that going to be lost. But then, I mean, I've heard that argument. Some people have been saying it's going to mean that the site will probably go full legal now. You know, will they be able to, will they still allow like ROMs and stuff to get posted on there? You see, mm. the other thing I'm thinking though is, uh, is this a plug from Atari's point of view with the new uh, release of the Atari 2600 uh, yeah. remake? We've talked about being cartridge based and actually, you know, original original cartridges. Are they looking for a source to be able to actually get new released cartridges through? And, you know, maybe they're going to use that as a portal for it. Yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking. The fact that this timing just seems a bit too coincidental, doesn't it? They're bringing out this hardware. Now, obviously, they're going to need... I mean, that was my big concern when I first heard about the Atari 2600+. Plus. And I did say on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that who are they, who are they aiming that at? Is it people that have got a collection of, like, 40-year-old cartridges still? Because... Yeah. You know, there's not that many new ones being made, but by the sounds of this, it plan. It looks to me like they're planning on buying this community and then being able to basically produce new games via the Atari Age forums and community for the 2600 plus. So yeah. that would seem like a, a logical step. Yeah, I guess when you put it like that, it's like, okay, who can we brand this to? Well, we'll buy the people we can brand this yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it will be interesting, uh, like you say, Ash. Like in a week's time. You know, is Atari Edge going to go, you know, oh, these Atari casinos they were talking about five years. Maybe we should do them again, kind of thing. <laughs> the Atari hotels, like, make, make a comeback and say they're a great idea. Um, I can I can see the pros and cons. It feels like they've moved on a bit from that now, though, yeah. doesn't it? Because, I mean, they were, they were doing those weird things, like, in 2020, but last, like, year or two, it feels like well, they're a lot more focused yeah, now. Well, on the they've got a new, yeah. uh, new CEO in 2021. Yeah. So he seems a little bit more focused on, on the... Uh, What's the word? Not the heritage. Yeah, the heritage, you know, yeah. the history of Atari and kind of looking looking backwards, but what can we do? You know, kind of like tap into that market and stuff like that and realising that Atari probably isn't the future of gaming or the future of like, uh, you know, multimedia anymore kind of thing. I think you're right. Since Wade, Wade Rosen is, isn't it? Yeah. The, the CEO now. Yeah, since he took over, it does feel like they've been a lot more focused on basically let's, you know, preserve the legacy of the classic systems, the stuff that we're best known for, really. Yeah. Because you're right. I mean, you know, you're not going to get like, you know, my nephew's nine years old. You're not going to get him playing Atari. Mm. You know, you couldn't tear him off his Nintendo Switch. But I think having new systems and it does seem a better approach to me than, you know, when they tried to do that new Atari VCS console and take on the modern systems kind of head on. We could all see that was never going to work, a bit like the Intellivision Amico. Um, but I think this approach here, it definitely does sound like if they're making basically new Atari hardware and carts to go with it, they're basically tied to that limitations of the original systems and also titles that will work on the old 2600 and 7800 as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I you, think. See, you see, I think I think there's been um, they've been slow with the big brands to recognise the new releases. 
Uh, yeah. Obviously, we've been talking about it for years, decades, even with the, you know the homebrew uh, scene on them. But the amount of bigger companies now that are actually starting to release on original cartridges and hardware, cross-platform as well. And I think slowly a lot of the big companies are starting to realise that there's a market there for it. And obviously those 40-year-old systems are not going to last forever. So it is kind of, you know, it's useful to have new hardware on the market too for it. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I do understand people's concerns that sometimes when corporations can take over what are essentially fan communities, it can sometimes change it for the worse. But I think, you know, I think wait and see, give them a chance. I think it does feel like the steps have been taken recently do feel very respectful yeah. to the community from what I've seen. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that story. And of course, uh, any developments on that, we will let you know. Now, a system that is a, a fair bit newer than the Atari 2600, and uh, still we have to pinch ourselves that this is now, I think we can probably say it is almost considered retro. I mean, we've talked about our rule, you know, 20 years. 20 years ago is kind of the retro cutoff for this show generally. Um, but the Xbox 360 turns uh, 20 years old in a couple of years' time, about 18 months, I think. And now this is quite an interesting development. If you, uh, if you wanted to build your own Xbox 360, you can out of Mega Blocks. Now, I wasn't familiar with Mega Blocks before, but I guess these are kind of like a, a competitor to Lego. Yeah, Mega Blocks was always like they're, they're the cheaper knockoff version of Lego. You know, you'd see them in uh, Wilco's RIP, um, B&M and stuff like that. <laughs> and, um, and you know, they were, they were always the cheaper version. And back in the day, they weren't quite compatible, you know, with Lego, even though it'd have, you know, slapped all over it. Like the bricks work with other leading brands of, you know, right. building bricks, <laughs> you know. So it was never, it was never quite Lego. Uh, mega blocks, uh, which I thought was quite funny that they've obviously got the uh, the Xbox 360 license here because obviously Lego in the last kind of like what five to eight years, you know, have been putting out all these amazing, you know, the Nintendo, the Atari, the Sonic stuff, the Ma- you know all the Mario stuff. They've you know they've got these huge deals with Sega and these great, you know, the Nintendo one was fantastic. They did the Atari 2600 one earlier this year or the back of this year, but yeah, the Xbox 360. Mega Blocks one is interesting. I mean, don't get me wrong; it looks awesome, and uh, I didn't have my glasses on when I saw this earlier on, and it and it looks it does just look like an Xbox three hundred and sixty uh, with the color off. It looks mint, where you can actually yeah. see inside of the uh, the fake circuit board and even like yeah. the uh, wires and the heat pipes and stuff. It's yeah, yeah, even the DVD tray and that's in there, isn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. So um, interestingly, funny that you should mention that. So just to kind of go through some of the some of the specs of uh, this Lego brick Xbox 360. <laughs> um, so it's going to be three-quarter scale, um, so slightly smaller than your Xbox 360. It does come with a copy of uh, Mega Bloks uh, Halo 3, as well as obviously an Xbox 360 Mega Bloks controller, which is fantastic. But um, it is going to be 1,342 pieces, and it will light up. So it does include uh, functional indicator lights, and you can put the disc in the disc tray, and it does have a detachable uh, hard drive as well. So you know how you could take the hard drive off the Xbox 360? On the top, yeah. On the top. That is fully detachable as well. And apparently there is some kind of, it doesn't say what, but there is like secrets to it. So where you take the panel off, like you were saying, Ashley, there is quite a few functions in there for you to kind of discover. I'd love it if one of them was a Red Ring of Death. I was going to say that. I think you're nicking the Red Ring of Death in there. Functional LED. Yeah, so it says it's got functional, multi-changeable LEDs. So it would be hilarious if there was a red one in there. 
we'll, we'll have to see. But it's going to be exclusive to Target, um, you know, the big American chain. So I'm not too sure if we're going to be able to get it in the rest of the world or in Europe at least. I have um, to say, I, I suppose the big question for me is, does it run Doom? Yeah. <laughs> probably at some point, yeah. Probably. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Probably if somebody put a pie in there or something. But um comes out October 8th, $150. Bit on the pricey side. I know the Lego sets are usually like $250. I was going to say, yeah. For the size of it, I think that's probably more affordable than Lego would have made it. Yeah. Um, what did I you also, say it was again? Three three quarter size, was it? Three quarter size, yeah. yeah. So it's still yeah. pretty chunky. Does come in the Xbox 360 box, which I love. Um, so the box is the same as the original Xbox 360 box, which is fantastic. Yeah, it looks mint. Yeah, it does look really cool. But it's just funny that it's me- I, it just made me laugh that like it was Mega Bloks rather than Lego. Yeah, I was going to say, do you reckon Microsoft actually contacted Lego or which way around it was? I wonder whether Lego didn't want it and Mega Bloks was like, yeah, yeah, we'll have it. Yeah, maybe. I, I couldn't see Lego turning it down because, like you said, they've done so many other ones. Yeah. I imagine it was just a case of maybe Mega, whoever the company are, basically saw a gap in the market. So, I mean, again, I think a lot of the older ones, you know, like the nin- Nintendo ones and the, the Sonic stuff, that kind of tapped into nostalgia, which a lot of these kind of, you know, Lego products aimed at adults do tend to do that, don't they? But again, it just kind of proves that maybe, you know, the 360 is going into that area now, the nostalgic kind of realm. Mm. Um but I love the attention to detail on it as well. I mean, it's even got like the the power adapter socket on the back. It's got, you know, the USB and the Ethernet on the back of it as well. You've even got the, because remember the early 360s didn't have HDMI, no. did they? It was just that, that, that connector that you put in, that big chunky. Yeah, connector. yeah. Yeah, that's um, true. It's even that as well on the back of it, the memory card sockets are there on the front as well. I must admit, I'm looking um, at the controller and that looks pretty awesome as well. Uh, you know, yeah, it does look, yeah, well, it just looks amazing, that controller. Someone's got to get that wired up to work. <laughs> ingenious person throw, that across, YouTube, throw sure. that across the room when you lose on a Tekken or Soul Calibur or something at least so, we're uh, yeah, TV are, though yeah yeah true <laughs> well if you're in America you want to get hold of this pre-orders are already sold out so there's obviously a demand for this but they are going to be yeah, released in Target in the US on October the 8th like you said at 149.99 there is kind of some joke in there about the Xbox 360 being bricked I'm sure, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll move on from that. <laughs> we'll move on from that. <laughs> and while we're talking about more recent consoles, and I said 20 years ago is kind of the cut-off point, uh, this one is a bit more recent, though, admittedly. Uh, this is the Nintendo Wii U, which is a weird one, because, I mean, we do generally tend to cover Wii U news on this podcast, probably because Ravi's like, you know, the biggest Wii U fan in the world. Uh, but also, weirdly, the Wii U, to me, even though it is the same age as, like, the PS4, and the Xbox One, because it kind of came and went pretty quick, it kind of, to me, it feels a bit like the Dreamcast, you know, like that kind of system that really didn't live up to its potential and kind of feels longer ago than it probably was. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I totally agree with two statements there, that Ravi is our in-house uh, Wii U fanatic. Yep. Um, but yeah, it, it was it, it proper been and gone, do you know what I mean? It was, yeah, what was it, 2012, 2013, the Wii U came out, and I know the, you know, the Switch came out in 2017, but... Wii was, you know, long dead by then. I think mm. the last two years of it, that only a handful of games came out on it. But um, obviously we were covering everywhere last year that the Wii U and the 3DS, pretty much they, they've gone offline. They're, you know, their uh, marketplace and everything like that, all their online features have all been turned off. Um, but the reason we're talking about it this week is um, Pretendo have made their own yeah. game service for it, which is uh, pretty interesting. 
Now, I've got a Wii U in my office. I'm looking over at it now. I must admit, I haven't used it for a while mm. because, yeah, Ravi modded mine, um, which actually is going to be quite handy for this because you do need a modded system. Yeah. yeah. If you want to use this new Pretendo service. Only thing is I need some Wiimotes for it to use it. <laughs> I've lost one. <laughs> so I need to pick some up. But now they're probably a bit cheaper than they were a couple of years ago. But I think actually, because um, the e-store's got closed down uh, about, I think it was March this year, yeah. wasn't it? They went offline. Apparently, though, because I've been looking into this, apparently you can still play some of the games online. Okay. So they haven't completely turned it off yet. But um, two, obviously two of the main games that are played on the Wii U um, is obviously Splatoon and uh, Mario Kart 8. And from doing a bit of digging around today, it turns out that apparently the both of those servers have kind of been in maintenance mode now since like the start of June. Yeah. Oh, okay. So people haven't been able to play them over summer, which um, I've seen a few people kind of you know, get a bit ranty about on Reddit. But again, I mean, now the e-store's been turned off. It does feel like only a matter of time before pretty much everything's closed down. So I do think it is important to have this um, this free, which mm. is really cool, and an open source replacement for Nintendo servers that you can play on your Wii U and your 3DS. Well, they did this with the Wii, didn't they? Because uh, I, I never yeah. actually installed it because I never really bothered playing my Wii um, on the online ones other than Mario Kart occasionally with friends. But again, the the Wii one they've had for a while now with alternative servers up. So there's still loads of people play things like Mario Kart and that online uh, for the Wii. So I think really it's 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 a replication of that for the Wii U and the 3DS. But it looks like at the moment they've got about, well, they're saying they're, they're about 67% to get in a load of different games working. Uh, Mario mm. Kart 8 on there, they're saying they're nearly there. They're at just, just about 90% and... So it sounds like at the moment it's very limited, very early days, but it sounds like they're going to have a lot of the major online ones you know, working in a short time frame. So I think for Wii U users who've been sort of envious of the Wii uh, online servers, I think this is going to be a really good option. Yeah, and it's cool that they're using, basically, they're, they're using what they call clean room reverse engineering. That means you know, they haven't looked at any of Nintendo's code or anything like that. So, you know, it shouldn't get on the wrong side of their lawyers. Um, and they're not charging for it either. So, you know, when Nintendo Network shuts down, there shouldn't be any problems with this. You know, Nintendo can't do anything about it. Um, but obviously, like we said before, you do have to have a modded system because you need to install a homebrew launcher. And there are a few different ones that you can install on the uh, on the Wii U and the 3DS as well. It looks like at first they're focusing mainly on getting the Wii U up and running and then the 3DS a bit further down the line. And there is a Discord server that you can join, and there is kind of a public beta. So some people have been playing like Mario Kart 8 on the on the Wii U online over the last couple of months. And from what I've seen, I mean, you know, there's a couple of videos on YouTube as well. It looks like it's running pretty well at the moment. So I do think it is a valuable service, and I think, yeah, I mean, we've always thought that. That's always been the concern since consoles went into kind of the, the online age, you know, kind of what happens when the parent companies you know, don't care about them anymore and close them down. And it does kind of feel like now we can be rest assured that the, the fan community are going to take over where they left off. You see, I, I wonder a bit, though, when it when it's the Wii U being uh, put through on the servers, so I wonder whether this could pass through to the Wii uh, emulation. Because, again, that would be awesome, because mm. you literally would have an all-in-one retro hub because the Wii U then you could use for all its normal homebrew, you could use it for these, for playing the older Wii U games online, and possibly then go through and pass through for the Wii and play those ones online. That'd be awesome if it could do that. You would have thought that'd be the natural kind of progression of it, but on the Pretendo article right at the bottom, it says, will Pretendo support 
the Wii slash Switch, and it says the Wii already has a custom service provided by Wii MM uh, MMSI, yeah, Windfear, yeah, Windfear, yeah. So they've got no plans of doing it. But what you've just said there actually would be the natural progression. You would have thought make it an all in one kind of unit. So you know, like you say, you can jump on Mario Kart Wii, Mario Kart Eight. You know, all the you know different ROMs and everything you can download and hack and yeah. everything on there as well. Get if they implemented you know. that, you you could imagine like the price of Wii U's just shooting up. Yeah, yeah. Every, everyone <laughs> suddenly realizes that it's like the ultimate machine for uh, all these different you know emulations and systems. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of this. I think it's really cool. And I think, you know, for people who've got kind of, you know, systems that are now kind of gathering dust because the companies that made them no longer care. Because, um, I mean, I've used stuff like, you know, I've, I've used Homebrew servers for the Dreamcast and the original Xbox before as well that were a bit more complex than this. I think the ones I tried on those needed to be connected to a PC via Ethernet and run that, like the gateway on your PC. But this obviously having a modded system, you can just in- install their launcher when it's ready. And it sounds like it will work, you know, as easily as the Nintendo services. And also one of the uh, the great questions on the, the frequently asked questions here is, if I'm banned on Nintendo Network, will I still be banned on Pretendo? <laughs> and apparently they've got no access to any of Nintendo's information. So you're not going to be banned from it. <laughs> There's going to be loads of people rubbing their hands together now, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I'm back, baby. <laughs> It does also mean, unfortunately, it doesn't carry over, like, you know, your achievements and stuff either, because they can't access any Nintendo stuff. But apparently they are going to be implementing their own achievements kind of system on here as well. Oh, cool. So um, I think it's really cool to see a bit of extra life getting injected into the uh, the Wii U and the 3DS. So I'll link up their website if you want to read more about the Pretendo network. It's hopefully launching for everyone soon. Now, while we're talking about Nintendo, um, what about a bit of love for the NES? Now, this is a really cool-looking new cart, and this is called the... The Triple Jump, a new multi-cart for the Nintendo Entertainment System that offers three NES platform games. This is uh, this is smashing it on Kickstarter. It's mm. uh, at the point of recording this, we're we're a week in to the Kickstarter, and it's going to be uh, ending on the last day of September, by the looks of things. And uh, it's already on fifty-five thousand pounds against a target of twenty-five thousand pounds. Yeah, more than double already. More than double already. Yeah, with twenty-two days to go. Um, I think the reason this is doing so well is it is a the reason it's called the triple jump. I just assumed, you know, when I first saw the name, the triple jump, it was a platformer game where you would triple jump, you know, based around jumping and platforms and stuff. But it's actually because of it's a three in one multi cart, so it's going to have three games on there, which are all they are all indie platformers. Uh, but it's going to be Micro Majors, the Second Quest, Space Goals, and Bubble, uh, which all look really interesting. Yeah, they, um, they. I mean, they're very typical uh, NES platformers, aren't they? Mm. But they, they've they've captured it perfectly. I mean, obviously they're using the original hardware, so it's going to be because they're bound by the same limitations. But I must admit, I mean, if you look at the quality of some of these, you, you, you'd be thinking, you know, uh, first party releases on Nintendo really with some of them. They, they look stunning. Yeah. Uh, graphically, you know, the colours and everything else on it. So I always think Nintendo's been quite muted palette, obviously, because its mm. limitations with tile-based. Uh, but these look to have quite vibrant palettes as well. So, yeah, it, it definitely looks interesting. The games themselves look pretty pretty cool as well. Yeah, in, in terms of the games themselves, they've, they proper... You know Shovel Knight, you know, by like Yacht, like Yacht Club Games and a lot of those kind of like, uh, yeah. I forget the name of it, Neo Ninja, I think it is, or something like that. Obviously, they have those kind of like 
they're for Xbox and PS4 and PS5 and stuff, but they have that 8-bit aesthetic. Some of yeah. these games, they look like that. They look like they're running, you know, on an Xbox One or Series yeah. X, but then they've got the 8-bit aesthetic, but they are actually running, you know, on the NES at 8-bit. Um, it is incredible uh, what they've managed to do with it. And uh, this bubble game looks really interesting because it's actually a physics-based Metrovania game where you actually play as a bubble. <laughs> Um, so it's a- oh, you play as the bubble. I've just seen the screenshots. I thought you played as like the toad on the side oh, of the screen. Oh, is it the toad? I'm not sure. The- no, I think you're right. It is a bubble you play as. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. It, yeah. it looks really, really interesting. And then obviously the uh, the uh, the Micro Majors is, is a sequel. I've not played the first Micro Majors, but apparently it's a, a really highly rated indie game. So yeah, it is going to be coming on physical cartridge, which is awesome as well. We haven't actually mentioned that yet, but it is physical cartridge running on the Nintendo. I wonder what they've done then. I wonder whether it's like bank switch to something or whether they've just put, you know, additional ROM chips in it for, mm. you know, doing it. Because uh, I, I don't know enough about the NES in terms of how it uh, interfaces into the cartridge slot. But um, either that, they're just small, small ROMs. But I don't know. I don't know what the limitation was on the NES ROM, to be honest, for what size they could uh, pump through. Pretty yeah, because these look like quite advanced games, don't they, yeah, compared they do. to some that you got back in the day. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, but I mean, yeah, like we said, the, the, all three games are, are shipped on this uh, one cart that is a beautiful looking cartridge as well. I mean, it's got a um, holographic print as well. Um, there's manual, full manual in the game as well. You've got you know, the cartridge of the box. I love the look of the, the artwork as well. It's kind of like, uh, it's obviously from Morphcat, the company behind it. So you've got the cute kind of kawaii, I think is uh, what they call it. Yeah. Um, kind of cat logo there as well with kind of neon effects on it so it's very cutesy looking isn't it mm. i think uh, a, a, another thing that's worth pointing out is they are actually releasing just the roms so yeah. if you want to play an emulation you, you can just download the roms as well and pay for the the roms element yeah but obviously anybody with original hardware is going to want the uh going to want the actual original cartridges but again it comes back to what i was saying earlier about the atari article uh again the the you know the, the expansion now of people releasing uh, original titles on the original hardware and cartridges. It's just blowing up at the moment. I mean, I'm looking at this thinking, yeah, I could download the ROM and stick it on my EverDrive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I'm just, I'm just uncultured like that. Seven, seven quid. <laughs> it's pretty cheap, and then it's forty-two <laughs> yeah. if you want the cartridge. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it depends. Which I don't think it? is a bad price with a physical cartridge, to be honest. No, you. I mean, you pay that for most NES games for a lot yeah. of NES yeah. games anyway. Decent ones these days, anyway. Yeah. Even when they were new, they were that price, weren't yeah. they, back in the day? So, yeah, I think, yeah, it looks a really good quality collection. The fact you get three games as well, um, you know, people pay this just for single games these days, don't they? And I think it looks like a lot of love's gone into it. And obviously by uh, how much they're smashing that Kickstarter goal, it proves there is a big demand for uh, new NES games. So if you want to get involved, there is still a couple of weeks left on that. I will link that in our show notes as well. I just feel like a bit like the Nintendo Hour this week, but it's just been a busy week in the world of Nintendo, how it falls sometimes. Uh, but this is another incredible achievement. Now, I think we did cover this one, didn't we, Joe, a couple yeah. of years ago, and this was just kind of a, a proof-of-concept demo. But my word, has this come on a long way? This is Portal for the Nintendo 64. Yeah, man. So this has uh, been made by a developer called James Lambert, who... You know, like you say, we've he's been working on this for years, and we did cover it on the show. Uh, I want to say last year, maybe the year before, when it was first kind of announced as like a proof of concept that he'd got it working, that he'd actually got you know a, a, a room that looks like Portal, you know, on the on the N sixty four running where you could use the Portal gun and it would 
it would work. You know, you shoot your orange portal and then your blue portal and you run through it um, as you do in portal. And the fact that he got that to run on the N64 was fantastic. Well, now he's not far off completely making the entire game um, with just a few kind of like bugs and, you know, other things that he needs to kind of work on. But yeah, at the moment, we've gone from proof of concept to uh, full full scale N64 D-make. What do you reckon of this, Ash? Uh, well, I, I mean, it, it, to be honest, I think it looks stunning for an N64 because, mm. I mean, obviously the resolution's lower than, you you know, you'd be used to on the PC, but he's captured it. And the other thing that gets me is the, the textures and the, the quality. I mean, I'm used to seeing the N64s looking a little bit blurry on that side, but this yeah. looks quite sharp and crisp. So I'm actually mm. impressed by, by the work he's done with it. And he's running at a really good frame rate from what I can see as well, which is obviously really import- important on it. I nearly said Portal. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it is Portal as well, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's even saying that he's got... Um, Chell voice acting in there and stuff like that. I mean, uh, you know, again, uh, I'm not quite sure because the N64 has obviously got limited storage on the on the cartridges and that. But so the the work that's gone into it is, is phenomenal. I'm, I'm just I'm just wondering whether uh, Valve are going to be uh, going after them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this one. Yeah, I mean the the N64. I think the the biggest carts you could get that were like sixty four megabytes. Obviously, there's a hell of a lot of compression compared to the original two, game one. Because I yeah. think that was the yeah. biggest yeah. one for compression on it, yeah, wasn't it? Was. it? Yeah. 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 But I, I think the fact that he's, he's basically there is a, a seven and a half minute video that you can watch that he's uploaded to YouTube in the last couple of weeks. Um, and he's got, you know, a lot of the voice dialogue and the music from the PC versions in here as well. And you can actually try this out running on a proper N64 if you head to his, uh, his GitHub, pay, GitHub page. Um, he's got like a you know, ROM download that you can put on an EverDrive or play under emulation. So um, I'm looking forward to giving this a try because it turns out you need, um, there's kind of some ROM patching instructions and stuff you need here as well. You need access to the original Portal game on a PC to then basically build the ROM that you can play on your N64. And I imagine that is to do stuff like, you know, bringing those kind of voice samples over. Yeah. You couldn't use those, it might you know, also without. be his way of getting around maybe the Valve issue. Yeah, yeah, that's why a lot of them do it, isn't it? You know, if you're modding a game, essentially, you know, taking some of the original assets, it's best just to import them from something that someone's paid for, and you get around the piracy issue as well. Um, but I mean, I, I mean, I love the original Portal and uh, Portal Two, which um, for some reason I got quite far into Portal Two and then gave up on it. I've got a feeling it might have been around that era, you know, when the uh, when the Xbox One came out and I was playing it on my 360. And the 360 kind of got packed away and never got back into it again. But the original X, uh, the original uh, Orange Box, I think it was, I got the original Portal game on. I spent hours on that. And uh, maybe I've completed eight games in my lifetime, Joe. Maybe. <laughs> I forgot about Portal. <laughs> yeah, that's in the list. Now, you see, I'm the opposite. I, I never actually played Portal 1. I bought Portal 2. Uh, and I was the same as you, Dan. I got about, I don't know, well, I'm assuming about halfway through. I got into the old complex on it. And there was one particular puzzle room I just couldn't get past. And yeah. and I kind of just gave up on it. And I really keep meaning to go back to finishing it because it's such an amazing game. But And, you know, nowadays I just look up a guide anyway, so <laughs> be able to get past yeah. it. Watch but, YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so I mean, for me, it'd be interesting to see whether he moves on to Portal 2 afterwards. <laughs> I mean, it's puzzled me that, you know, it's been such a big game, you know, in terms of gaming history. It's got a lot of fans. It's been interesting there hasn't been a new Portal game for like a decade or so. 
you know, you think it would have been a franchise. Wow. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a puzzle game, isn't <laughs> it? Valve so. can't count to three. <laughs> well, no. we do know that, yeah, that is true, that is true. But again, it'd be um, easier for them to do than, say, you know, the infamous Half-Life 3, because storyline-wise, yeah. they can do what they like with Portal. Because although it's in the same sort of timeline in the universe, you know, it's, it's undefined in the Half-Life games, so you could get away with doing whatever you want of Portal 3. Mm. So, and it's, it's just you just need new rooms, really, don't you? Yeah, you know, just to puzzles, really. That's, that's all you need from it. Um, but I've I've actually been thinking of kind of revisiting the original Portal of Gangs. I haven't played it for over a decade now, um, but I'm thinking now the uh, the N64 version might be a good angle to kind of approach a replay. So I think it's well overdue, and I think the, you know the amount of effort he's put into this. And I mean, if you watch this video through, there are still a couple of bugs in there, but not many by the looks of it. I mean, he said pretty much all the the game breaking bugs that he encountered, it looks like he's fixed most of them now. Um, you might get the odd glitch in that here and there, but everything you'd expect from Portal is in here. It doesn't seem like there's anything that's kind of been taken out or any of the puzzles kind of too stripped down. It's just, it's actually quite mind-blowing that this is running on the N64. And it makes me think, you know, if this game had to come out like back in 97 on the N64, how legendary it would be. You know, probably will be up there in like the the top N sixty four games of all time, wouldn't it? Well, like, what was what was the first um, Half Life part? Was it Dreamcast or something? Yeah, there was meant to be a version of it on the Dreamcast, but then obviously when Sega announced in two thousand one that they were ending production of the Dreamcast, I think then the the, the port of it got pulled for the Dreamcast. Mm. I don't think it it wasn't officially finished back in the day. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. It's just uh, you know these games. They often do lend themselves quite well to consoles, I think, because you know you don't need a lot of keyboard controls and all that kind of thing. So I think, you know, even playing this with the N64 analogue control and trying to imagine what it'd be like moving the character around with that little analogue stick. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking of the aiming <laughs> element of that as well because you've yeah, only got the yeah. one analogue stick. Didn't so think, I yeah. bet it, yeah, I bet they have to use direction buttons for movement and uh, the analogue sticks for looking. They might do what they did yeah. on Turok where, oh no, I don't know, on Turok used C, the C, C buttons, the yellow C buttons. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, he did. Yeah, to look around. Yeah, That's well, I mean, obviously, he's got it up and running and the ROM is available. Um, and I'm tempted to give it a download and uh, try it out. Um, so I think it does look very impressive. So I'll report back after I've played it. But if you want to uh, download that and play it on emulation or uh, a flash card, if you've got one for your N64, uh, that beta is available now for free on his GitHub page. And I'll link that up. And of course, all the rest of the stories we talked about, you find them in the podcast notes section of your podcast app, or you can head to our website, the link directly from theretrohour.com. Now, crazily, it feels like this month has just begun. Um, next weekend, though, final weekend of the month. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, <laughs> that's come round so quickly. Yeah, the, the uh, Sunday the twenty fourth will be the last Sunday of uh, of the month of September. So we all know yeah. what that means. We're getting close to Halloween. <laughs> and uh, patrons hang out, of course. We do look forward to this on uh, the last weekend of every month as well. Um, we've talked about it so much, Ash. I mean, obviously, you always come on when you can. You actually joined from a festival. Briefly on the last hangout. Yeah, well, I was getting withdrawal <laughs> symptoms because I'd had two months where I'd had something on at the time that the uh, the hangout was going on. <laughs> so the last time round was our, our village have like uh, their own little mini festival uh, on the last last bank holiday weekend of August. Uh, and I, I thought, I, you know, I've missed the guys so much. I thought I'm going to have to just put in a couple of minutes of uh, attendance. So, yeah, I streamed stream from my phone so everybody could see the, <laughs> the little... Uh, 
little festival we were at and it was nice to see some faces even though I couldn't really hear what people were saying. So I just said hello for five minutes and then thought I better not be too antisocial otherwise my, parents, uh, my uh, wife's going to divorce me and the kids are going to run away. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate the effort and, uh, you know, we do get people dropping in from all over. It's like, you know, we've some of our members are there in the gym, you know, just chatting when they're on the treadmill. We have people in the car who come on sometimes as well. Um, trying to think of other places. We've not had anyone on the plane yet, have we? That probably wouldn't be advisable. Cars no, is not your, the plane Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, the plane Wi-Fi. Ca- cars and tents. Um, they're, they're quite common ones. Yeah. Well, to think so. Obviously, it's been summer and people have been all over. And we did the last one on there, the bank holiday weekend here in the UK. So it did mean a lot of people were all over the place. But hopefully, if uh, if you can make it on the uh, the next weekend of the it's the last weekend of the month, the twenty fourth, and uh, next Sunday, it's when we all get together. We invite all our patrons on. Uh, basically, a massive Zoom call, and we all geek out about all things retro. Um, you know, we swap advice, just kind of geek out and have a bit of fun really it's always a good laugh so if you want to join us for that now is a very good time to join our patrons community and also we do have a new episode of our bonus patrons only podcast the retro hour after hours is available now where we go through our top five licensed games and we have been trying something a bit different on the after hours podcast we've been doing video on there for a couple of months now, haven't we? Yeah, and it actually worked this month as well. Mm, yeah. <laughs> my, my internet held out. Yeah, we've um, we've been playing around with video, you know, for, for various reasons. I'm um, very thankful that you're not doing video tonight while I'm sat in the hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's a very glamorous hotel, though, actually. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, <laughs> at the Savoy, yeah? But yeah, um, I, watched, I watched it back, Dan, and uh, I thought it looked absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, I, w- I was watching it and... I won't go through my selections and stuff like that, but you know, you managed to. You, as people may know, Dan, Dan is a YouTuber as well. He's got a very, very great, very good channel, successful channel, and uh, yeah, just kind of seeing it, uh, the kind of production value on it, and uh, seeing like the gameplay and stuff like that playing uh, while we were talking about the games. I thought, you know what, that looks really, really, really good. Um, so yeah, if you if you've never checked it out before, if you've never checked out the After Hours, if you're not a patron and you want to check it out, I think. This, this month's episode is an absolute fantastic episode to go watch. Or if you already are a Patreon and you've never watched it, but you've never gone and listened to the uh, After Hours, check this month's episode out, honestly. And if if you're a fan of the Patreon After Hours and you've listened to it before and stuff, let us know what you thought of this month's episode because of, uh, yeah. I know, a lot of time and effort went into it from Dan's side of things. So uh, we want to know if it's worthwhile and stuff as well. Uh, but I, for one, think it looked fantastic and really enjoyed it. Yeah, and the After Hours is basically anything goes on that podcast. Mm-hmm. So different themes every month, and there is 37 episodes of that you can unlock if you join our patrons' community as a gold member or above. So all the details to sign up are on our website right now at theretrohour.com. All right, well, Ash, listen, thank you so much for coming on and joining us for the news this week. I know uh, I appreciate it was a bit short notice. Thank you very much for having me on. I've enjoyed it, as always, uh, and thanks for uh, keeping me calm on it as well because I was a bit nervous because I totally weren't prepared. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, Storm, as always, mate, thank you very much. And uh, get well soon, Ravi. Get well, Ravi. And he's actually on the show next, recorded in Norway a couple of weeks ago at the wonderful Retro Mesa event. Getting the stories of Rare's biggest secret, the stop and swap trick. What was it? What could it have done? Find out all about that next. Ravi chats to Paul Makacek next on the Retro Hour podcast. <laughs> So I'm uh, Ravi from the Retro Hour podcast and uh, I've come over for England and we're doing the panels about, you know, British gaming companies and uh, we've got Paul Makacek from Rare here and we mentioned in the Banjo panel earlier that there was this uh, 
amazing secret technology named uh, Stop and Swap. Mm. So we're going to talk all about this. And uh, there's been lots of stuff online recently. And uh, there's been, there's been a, a lot of stuff online for 25 years, but recently, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, been lots of hacks and discoveries and stuff. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're going to go in depth in this and we're also going to have questions afterwards as well. So what was Stop and Swap? Where did the idea come from? It was the greatest thing we never shipped properly. So the first thing, I, I need to start with this. I'm sorry. I did this to you. It's my <laughs> fault. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And uh, if I'm honest with you, we were trying to create magic and witchcraft for a bunch of kids. We wanted them to see us do something and wonder how the hell we did it. We were always pushing the boundaries of the hardware, and we wanted to surprise people and, and just get them to go... What did Rare do? Sadly, we didn't do it properly, and people have been going, what did Rare do for 25 years? Um, and they've dug through my code and uh, speculated. I have read some of it online. It's interesting. Um, I love the comments from people who said what we should have done because they missed the point of what we were trying to do. Um, so stop and swap. Tim Stamper uh, and Greg Mayles. So Greg was the lead designer on Banjo-Kazooie. We were getting quite late in development, um, and we were running late anyway, so this was late, 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 late. We'd missed Christmas. We were supposed to have released it for uh, Christmas 97, and it was replaced by Diddy Kong Racing. So th they'd been talking about how we could... How do I put this well? Sell more games. Kind of in the business of doing this, right? What could we do that would encourage people to buy more of our games? And there was an idea that if we could connect some games together, so you had one game, but you could do something extra in it if you had this other game. And it was an idea. But they had no idea how to do it, no idea how to deliver it. This was going to be a technical issue, right? So, um, so Tim came to me one day, and, uh, and, and you know, we had a conversation that lasted about three, four, five minutes. And, and he, 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 he put this question to me. Could we send some sort of code from one game to another? And while he was talking, something popped into my head. Uh, and it was a, a thing that I had seen. We've all seen it, if you've played on any of the home computers out there over the years. And I just remembered something that I was always curious about that I'd seen on home computers. And his question to me made me think, I'll go and experiment. I'm going to go and write some code and see if I can work out what's really going on with the hardware here. Now, before I tell you about this, I have to ask you all, Please, 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 because I love Jan who's running this, please do not go out there and start switching off and on all these computers, right? <laughs> because they need to work for next year if you want to come back. So please don't have a riot and destroy his Spectrums and Amstrads. Um, right, with that, don't try this at home caution out of the way. So in the 1980s, on all those home computers out there, there was no operating systems or anything. When you switch them on, the software that was on them was on a ROM chip. So when you switch them on, they come on instantly, and they start running whatever is on the ROM. But when you switch them off and switch them on again, they don't, there's no booting, they just come on instantly, right? When you switch them on again, there would be a brief flash on the screen, and it would be a residual image of what was on the screen just before you switch the power off. And it would be corrupted, it wouldn't look good, but there would be something that was recognizably what was there on the screen just briefly before the system would then wipe the RAM and set it to black or blue or whatever. And I was really curious about why so much data survived the power loss journey so that there was a recognizably visible after image of what had been on the screen. 
Okay? And you know, Tim's question to me encouraged me to go and have a look. Uh, I wanted to see if I could put data in the RAM of an N64, uh, switch it off and on again, and see if anything was there. And it turns out there was quite a lot. I can keep going. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fascinated. No, don't. All right, okay. <laughs> so, um, so I wrote a bit of code, and I decided that I wanted to send one byte of data. That was my challenge. I want one byte of data to survive switching the thing off. Except I needed to prove that it was a, a valid byte. So I created um, uh, a 64-byte packet of data. Okay. Uh, the first byte was the byte I want to send, and the other 63 bytes were error checking on the first byte. I was determined this sucker was going to was going to get through the the journey, and I was going to be happy the data was good. So it was actually a 64-byte packet of data. And what I did was I wrote a bit of demo software into a debug version of Banjo. And what it did was it wrote the 64-byte packet of data at four kilobyte intervals all the way through RAM. And then it sat there and put something up on the screen, which I'll come to in a minute. And the idea was, and I had two cartridges because I'm trying to demonstrate swapping. Okay? So I put the same bit of software on both cartridges, but I put a different code on each one so that this cartridge would be looking for the code that this, uh, that this cartridge left behind, and this cartridge would be looking for the code that that cartridge left behind. So what I did was um, put the first cartridge in the machine, switched it on, let it do its thing, switched it off, took it out, put the other cartridge in, switched it on. Now, what the, co what the code actually did was it simply, immediately before doing anything else, it just looked all the way through RAM, looked at all of these 4K uh, boundaries, and looked at the data that was there, and tried to go through all the error checking to see if that was a valid packet of 64 bytes that survived the journey. Um, and if it found one, it would count it. Uh, and if it didn't, whatever. So it moved on, and it scanned the whole of RAM. And at this point, I, I didn't care. Well, I sort of did. I, I didn't care if, if a packet survived the journey. I was more interested to see how many might survive the journey. And the very first time I, I ran it, I swapped the cartridges over, put the second cartridge in it, scanned RAM. It looked for all the packets it could find. And a number came up on the screen, and it was over 600. And I went, that can't be right. How did more than 600, bytes, uh, 600 packets of data survive the power loss journey? And I only had the power off for a second or so. It was fairly quick. So I did it a few times, and it was always 600 to 650 packets that would survive the journey. Um, so I called Tim, and he came up, and Greg. And, uh, and I, I, I had to, out of the gate, I had to explain the whole switching spectrums on and off. So, you know, one's a designer, the other's an artist and designer. They don't write code. So I said, do you remember that thing when you switch the spectrum off and on? And they go, yeah, yeah, well, here it is. And I showed them it running, and they were just sat there with their jaws open and going, that's ridiculous. Um, by the way, part of the brief was we didn't want text codes. Okay? We didn't want a text code that somebody could write it down a bit of paper and give it to his mate. Okay? We, we wanted people to buy the game. So, so the brief was send data in a way that nobody, nobody can hack this or do anything else, right? So anyway, it was late one night, we were sitting there, and we were trying to do Formula One pit stops on my desk. So Greg would be there, Tim would be there, Greg had his hand on the cartridge, I had my hand on the on-off switch, Tim had his hand on the other cartridge, and we'd go, three, two, one, go. And I'd go off, Greg would pull that out, Tim would shove that one in, I'd switch it back on. Um, and 600 packets survived the journey. We did this for a bit, and then realised it was a completely stupid thing, because no one's going to do that at home. You don't need three people doing a Formula One pit stop. 
So I, I, I pointed out, you know, if we're going to do anything with this, it has to be easy, it has to be robust, it has to be reliable. So we decided to slow things down. So Tim went and got a stopwatch, and we, we were timing this. Um, so I remember we switched the machine off for three seconds and did the swap, and it came back and like 450 packets had survived the journey. Okay, uh, we did it for five seconds, and 400 packets survived the journey. And we, yeah, we were doing this lots of times. We don't want some anomaly. We want something that's repeatable. It's going to work, it's going to work, it's going to work. We want something that we can give to all of you lovely people. And we, we just kept extending the time, and we're sitting there going, how, how is that off for 10 seconds and it still works? And we were down to about 200 packets surviving the journey at this point. We kept on going, and we got to a point that if we switched it off for 23 seconds, somewhere between one and three packets would survive the power loss journey. And that's when Stop and Swap was born. It was, it was, it was an interesting name as well, because it wasn't Swap as in SWAP, it was SWOP. Yeah. Yeah, how did that come about? We were tired. It was three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and somebody wrote the wrong thing down on a bit of paper, and they can't spell. That's, that's the reason you do anything. And is, essentially, you were trying to link all the cartridges then mm. in some way with a, a bit of data, and it's kind of, it could be seen as like early DLC in a way, or yeah. expanding your kind of collection. What yeah. was your kind of mindset approaching it then? This all came out of the blue, and, and as I said earlier, Banjo was running late. And we were in a bit of trouble in Nintendo because they'd put $10 million up uh, as a marketing budget for Christmas and they didn't have a game, so we had to give them Don uh, Diddy Kong Racing instead. They didn't want us mucking about with anything. They wanted us to ship the game and suddenly we were looking at this feature and going, what can we do with this? Um, we figured we were probably going to write a, ban uh, a sequel to Banjo, all right, which we ended up doing. Uh, and Donkey Kong 64 was in production at that time and the game that ended up being Conker's Bad Fur Tales was in production at that time. I can't remember exactly where we were with some of the other N64 games, um, but, you know, there was going to be others. And, you know, we were having a chat about how far could we take this. It wasn't just about, let's do a sequel to Banjo, swap these two cartridges backward and forward, mm. and they send them each other's stuff. It's like, well, what about Perfect Dark? Can we do something with Perfect Dark? Diddy Kong Racing had already shipped, so that was, that was out of the window. So the discussion was... We figured we, had, we, were, we were looking roughly at six games in different states, states of development at that point in time. So why don't we try and connect them all? And it wouldn't be that Banjo sends a bunch of codes to the next game that we were going to release, which was DK64, and then that would send something to, I don't know, Conquer or, or TUI. Um, it would be, why don't they send codes in lots of different directions? So it was like a spider's web, a maze of sending codes from this to that to that to that. And then we had this idea that, well, what if, you, what if somebody had bought all six games... And we could identify by the, in the last one that it had been connected or the spider's web had been joined up with all of the other games. And so we came up with this concept of a supercode, which has been mentioned online. It's not really a supercode. It was just another code. We called it the supercode to, to mark that it was going to be a bit more special than the others. And the idea was that the supercode would be sent back to Banjo and Banjo would recognize that one and it would unlock uh, one of the Easter eggs. Uh, in the game, which didn't stand out. Um, the, the problem was, because we didn't know what we were going to go and do, and we were trying to get Banjo out the door, we had to think on our feet. If we'd had time to plan this out, and we, we understood what all the other games were going to be, we might have put a gun in Banjo to send to Perfect Dark and something else. What we actually ended up doing was, we don't know what we want to send to the other games, so why don't we send presents? So what the Easter eggs are, is they're Christmas presents. They're wrapped up, they're brightly coloured and mysterious with a question mark on, right? And then just as we were about to stick 
Banjo out the door, because DK64 was in quite an advanced state of development, we decided that um, we could tailor one of the Easter eggs for DK64, so we turned it into an ice key. So the ice key was supposed to go into DK64. And then we shipped Banjo, and it was all fully working in Banjo. And what was going to then happen was, as we then worked through the other games, we were going to think about it properly and, 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 and do stuff that had more meaning that was being sent between the games. But that's why the stuff you see in Banjo is mysterious, because we hadn't worked it out. And in theory, this could have worked on older consoles as well. You could have... So we were just chatting. I haven't thought about this ever, but we were just chatting, and, and it's just occurred to me, uh, Stop and Swap would have worked on the NES, and it would have worked on the Game Boy, for the exact same reason it works on the N64. So we could have done it earlier, just didn't think of it. Was there any kind of consideration that you might like be damaging the carts a bit? Or? No, that was Nintendo's consideration. We didn't care. <laughs> In fact, you might have bought more games, so that could have increased sales. Yeah. Um, what, what, what Nintendo's problem was, was that uh, they were worried that people were just going to rip cartridges out and hit their N64 when it didn't work and, and break things, and then there'd be warranty claims. Um, yeah. So it was in a Donkey Kong 64, but it got removed then yeah. on, on the final release uh, by Nintendo. So we fully implemented uh, Stop and Swap in Donkey Kong 64. It was great. Uh, we were going to be heroes. It was our moment in the limelight. And then we submitted it to Nintendo Lot Check, which is their final approval process before it goes to manufacture. Um, and unfortunately, since Banjo had gone through that process, they had tightened up their techniques for checking what developers had done. And they contacted us and said, why are you looking at RAM when our game switches on? Because, by the way, this was, this was a Donkey Kong game. They were a bit more precious about it, right? And they said, why are you looking at RAM? There's just garbage in RAM. What, why are you looking at that as, like, the first thing that your game does? And then we told them. <laughs> And they said, you did what? And we said, yeah, we did, sorry. Um, and then it all went a bit quiet, because they obviously had to go away and very politely think about what to do next, which might involve killing us. And then they sent us a very nice letter, okay? Because it was an offline world. So we, I, ha I have the letter. So a couple of years ago, um, during the pandemic, when we were all working from home, um, I had to clear my office out at, at the studio, so I took a load of boxes home. It was like 30 years, 35 years, whatever, of stuff um, because we were refurbing one of the buildings. And um, I opened one of the boxes, and the very first thing I pulled out was a piece of paper dated, I don't know, 1998 sometime, from Nintendo's technical department saying, Dear Mr. Stamper, and it was addressed to Chris Stamper, thank you very much for the creativity uh, of your stop and swap feature. Uh, we politely request you take it out of Donkey Kong 64. Uh, never do it again. And if you want to be creative in a mad way, please tell us first. And, uh, and so we disabled it. The problem was DK64 was going to manufacture, and we can't just rejig the backgrounds and, and, and the stuff that would set up uh, that was enabled for Donkey Kong 64. We just disabled the minimum amount of stuff that we needed to change um, in the game and take out the scanning software. So that's why there's a few places where there's like a pedestal with nothing on it. There was supposed to be something on it. And, you know, a week before we gave the final bill to Nintendo, there was something sitting on that pedestal. I don't remember what it was now. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame. It would have been great. They were also saying that with different versions of the N64, it wouldn't work later on or it, it would break compatibility. Was that yeah, right? they did say that. Uh, they need you to save face. Okay. I, have I admitted that in public? Nintendo are fantastic. They're a fantastically creative company. I mean, they did, a, well, a couple of people privately applauded us and said, well done for being stupid. 
uh, and, and try. You know, we were always pushing the boundaries. Everything that we ever did, you go back to the NES, the Game Boy, we were always pushing the boundaries of hardware. And this was right on the edge. It, this was a proper edge case of us pushing the hardware boundaries. Um, I have not tried it on later revisions of the hardware. At the time we tried it in the office, we had four revisions of the hardware. Um, there was the PAL one, there was a Japanese one, the American one, and something else that we had. Um, and it worked fine and consistently and equally well across all of those. Over time, hardware does get revised. Um, maybe somebody should have a go. There's a chap on YouTube who might have a go in the near future if I encourage him. Yeah, um, yeah. we'll talk about that in a sec because mm. that's, that's pretty interesting. But you, you mentioned that uh, there weren't shareable text codes and then you had some long rhyming text strings. Yeah, we're complete hypocrites. So, um, so the standard idea of a text code, you know, going back to the 1980s, which was what our thinking was, it would be a word, something, you know, eight characters long or whatever. Um, and we didn't want that. We didn't want people to share that. We wanted, and people have talked about the expansion pack as well. We didn't want them to use an expansion pack. We wanted them to physically have the two games there within 23 seconds of each other. That was the gist of it. And we didn't want text codes. We didn't want anything else. We wanted stop and swap to work and be magical. The problem was, right near the end, we realized, what if it didn't work? And you've got to bear in mind, we, we hadn't really built out the other games yet. We didn't have a, a, a mature set of games here that we were swapping them all around in. It was, it was, it was Banjo works with, a, with a, a, a debug build of Banjo, just to check that we, the, the functionality kind of works, right? So in the end, just before we shipped Banjo, we panicked and went, no, hang on a sec, we need a backup plan. So we came up with these really long text codes that are like rhyming sentences, uh, and you can type them in uh, with the beat buster move um, on the alphabetic floor uh, in the quiz room at the end of the game. And then and I had to spend several days in the office hiding those codes in the, in, the, in the software. I tried to scramble them as much as possible so that nobody would find them. They weren't open text strings. And sadly, I was useless because about three or four years later, somebody reverse-engineered Banjo and found the codes and published them online. Of course, so, with the internet. Gonna... Uh, the internet, the pesky <laughs> internet, yeah. Yeah, I, I was wondering as well, you, you couldn't then retro go back and, and change it, of course, because it was in the card. So, it's on a cartridge. So it was if offline. you'd implemented it and something changed in the future, then mm. you know that version you'd ha- you'd be stuck with that. And- we tried to leave our doors open with banjo, so that we then had time to do whatever we could think of with the other games over the next two or three years. Um, but the banjo was robust enough in in the basic functionality of what it did that stop and swap would work. It might have been that if we'd carried on, we could have advanced what we were doing, and some of the later games would have done more interesting things between them. Um, but Banjo would still be in the loop. It would still be connected. It still had the Easter eggs and the, and the ice key, um, and it would have had utility in there. But we would, have, we, we would probably have taken it further, because as, as soon as it was out, then people were going, wow, how did Rare do that? Tim would have said, right, I've got another dumb idea, and let's, let's go and do that. And can, we, can we send more complex stuff, you know? I think uh, a few of them were added in the 360 version, I think, with the online uh, stuff. Yeah, so, so we sort of paid homage to it. It obviously wasn't the, the, the full stop and swap experience, um, but we had to reference it. The thing was, the internet chatter then went off. The internet started becoming a, a big thing in the late 90s for, for a lot of people. And, and, you know, lots of people were discussing what the hell did Rare do? What is stop and swap? What do these Easter eggs do? What, why are they there? Why can't I get them? You know, they've spoiled my childhood. I can't get 105% in my game. Um, and so all of this, sort of, this, this stuff happened. And, um, 
And I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Don't kill me later. <laughs> and uh, you, you mentioned recently as well that there's, there's been some hacks and you've seen the Zelda one on YouTube where they've, uh, yeah. where they've implemented it. So um, I, I, I have personally, I, I ignored it for a long time. And I have personally sort of gone into forums online occasionally and left a little anecdote about stop and swap. And you, you get the usual. Some people go, what? And other people go, no, you don't work at Rare, go away. I've had a lot of that recently. It's fun. Uh, 35 years in, I don't know how I, I prove things. Um, so I have said stuff over the years. And then about three years ago, because we had nothing else to do, because there was a pandemic on and we are sitting at home twiddling our thumbs, some chatter built up and I started to be more open and honest. And I actually published, I, I, I put up on Twitter just randomly one day. It was a Friday night. You can imagine. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I took a picture of the letter and I put it up and went, hey, here, here you go, everybody. Nintendo banned it. There you go. That's proof. And people said, no, you faked the letter. Oh, God. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, but I started saying some more stuff. And, and I found out recently that about 15 years ago, somebody actually reverse engineered the stop and swap code in Banjo. So they kind of knew how it worked. So about three weeks ago, um, I came across a thing. Some chap who was big into modding uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, and he's got all the tools that he's built. He stop and swap enabled it. He took the reverse engineering uh, knowledge that had been gained and possibly some comments I've le left over the years, and he's, he's fitted it into his copy of, of Zelda. But he hasn't just put it in. He's, he's put a whole scene in. So, so you go into the game, and, and Banjo's head suddenly pops up, and the, 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 there's messages, and he's created a scene, and it's explaining stop and swap and the, the sheer lunacy of it. Um, and then said, and now go and stop and swap. And he pulls his Zelda cartridge out, puts Banjo in, and, and there's an island there, and you can now access an Easter egg on it. And it's the first time it's ever been shown outside our, our studio in Twycross. We didn't even show Nintendo, obviously, because we didn't want them to know. Because um, <laughs> we thought that was a good idea at the time, you know. Um, do, you, yeah, the, go on. do you think that there could be some like, full fan-made stop-and-swap collections then? I think that, the that, cat is out of the bag happen. now. Yeah. I mean, this guy is bound to enable all the other eggs in the ice key, and probably going to do some more Zelda stuff, and uh, I, I, I don't condone hacking, but I do applaud it, um, <laughs> seeing it in this case. It, it, it was funny. So the funny thing was then, uh, the one thing about the video that annoyed me, because it was the thing that Nintendo had the problem with, okay, what he did was he left the power on, he ripped the cartridge out, stuck another one in, and then power cycled it. You're kind of not supposed to do that with the power on because you might damage the cartridge or the console. So I innocently went on there under a pseudonym, and I said, uh, please don't do that with the power on. You can do it slowly. It doesn't need to be a Formula One pit stop. Switch it off, swap your cartridges, switch it on. You won't break anything. And then everybody hated me. <laughs> uh, and the instant reaction was, you don't work at Rare, thanks. And I explained to them why I said it. And lots of people fed back. And, and I got into a bit of a debate with a few people. And I said a few more things. And then somebody went, he doesn't sound like a maniac. He sort of makes sense. Give him a break. Let him have his piece. So I've, I've tried to explain it online. There's people telling me I'm wrong, okay? But yeah, if you go on the video on the chat thread, there's a, there's a handle floating on air and water. That's me, right? So anything under that handle that's been written, it's true, I promise. <laughs> and I was wondering if there's any info that's like not in the public domain that you could kind of share about it as well. Any tidbits or extra? <laughs> the thing about it was we were just trying to create magic, folks, all right? We've been known for Goldeneye which is not a rare game, long story. We'll do that another day. That team is fantastic, but it was their game. We're known for Donkey Kong, 
Donkey Kong Country, the first ever fully rendered video game. But I do wonder if we'd done stop and, stop and swap, and there's a, there would be a bunch of 40-year-olds in this room right now going, when I was a child, where did this magic on Christmas morning? I got my second stop and swap game, and I could do that. It's like, what was going on? It might have been the greatest thing that we ever did. Who knows? But if our role as a company is to provide entertainment, you've all been laughing at it for 25 years and winding each other up. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, can we get a big hand and we'll go to questions soon? <laughs> If anybody has questions about the concept or just just about overall hacking of games, then, uh, please yeah. go easy on me. Yeah. All right. So, well, first, thank you very much for your for your explanation about stop and swap. And now, well, this is more like a personal reflection rather than a question. Have you always felt like it was like easier in it was like more accessible in other consoles to perform like hardware tricks because well the NES, Bernays, and X64 it was like it was like more accessible like to do like um, hardware uh, like cool hardware tricks but it looks like in modern consoles modern computers doing that kind of stuff is like much harder i don't know what do you think about about that in those days the computer hardware it, it's, it, it is like this with a lot of the stuff that you got out there today in those days, the computer hardware was very simple. You had 8-bit processors hooked up to a bit of RAM. Not a, lot, not a lot of stuff going on there. When you switched them on, the software was usually on a ROM chip. It would just come straight on. You disable the interrupts. You clear the, the RAM. In my case, I did something in between those two because I thought it was a good idea. But the thing was, normally, with your code, when they come on uh, in a cartridge world, the very first instruction that they run is what you do, the game developer. It's, it's nothing that Nintendo has put there, for instance, right? Now, on more modern stuff, they've got operating systems. They boot up before you get anywhere near um, trying to run the game, okay? But we had full control of the hardware. There was nothing else there that you had to interface with. You're writing, you know, assembly language, and you're, you're poking numbers into ports, and you're directly accessing the hardware. And we always used to find ways to subvert what it was doing. You know, if you knew that there were special ways that you could modify what the sound chip was doing or, or, or the video chip on, on a console. You would do that and get it to do something that no other game was doing. My first game at Rare was Super Off-Road. Um, and I did some stuff that the programming manual told me I wasn't supposed to do to put extra colors on the screen. I think, um, I think you can get about 13 colors on the on background and 13 colors on sprites across the palettes, right? In total on the screen in one go. And I think it was, I think on Super Off-Road, if you, if you go and look, it's got about 20, 23 colors on screen. And the reason was I was doing weird color switching every frame as it, as it was scanning. The manual says don't do that. But I worked out the timing of it, and it worked fine. Until Nintendo asked us to release it in Japan, and I was confronted with the Japanese version of the hardware. <laughs> and it turned out it doesn't work on that version. And now I realize why the manual says don't do that. It worked on the American one, which was our core market. We sold a million copies there, right? So we were always trying to push the boundaries of what the hardware could do. Uh, and Stop and Swap was just a really mad version of that. Any other, any other questions? Uh, I'm uh, ignorant of the history of the Amiibo, but do you think there's any kind of overlap there that there's somebody at Nintendo that originally heard, uh, was in contact with your Stop and Swap just later on had like a brainwave and thought, Yeah, okay, they ripped the us off. We're going to sue them next week now that you mentioned that. <laughs> I, 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 you know, work for Microsoft, we're legaled up. I, I've got lawyers coming out. Um, well, we've got a lot of lawyers. Um, yeah, no. Uh, I, I don't know. We, we sowed the seeds of 
Love is what I want to say. Um, <laughs> I like Tears for Fears. I don't know. No, I'm giving credit to Nintendo on that one. Amiibo is theirs. If I thought of Amiibo, then I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I'm giving Nintendo credit on that one. I'm not taking any blame. We, we got any more? Yeah, hi. Uh, well, this might be a little bit of a rude question, in a way, but uh, uh, it might be just because I don't, maybe don't understand it completely, but would this process of the, uh, of the technique maybe be easier if you uh, had been able to use the memory pack system for, for the Nintendo 64? So, no, because that's not what we were trying to do, okay? Um, we specifically wanted people to have our games close to each other. We wanted a direct connection between our games. Okay? The memory pack wouldn't have allowed that, okay? because that would have allowed people to subvert it. They could take their memory packs to each other's houses and stuff. Um, we wanted people to have the game. And uh, we weren't really using memory pack uh, at that time. Uh, it only came in on Donkey Kong 64 because we screwed up and couldn't fit the game uh, into the core hardware, so, that, so they had to use it for that. But we, we were trying to create magic. Being able to, you know, using the memory pack, to saying this game saves a bit of data to the memory pack, and then this game can read that bit of data. There's no magic in that. That's just a save game slot, effectively, okay? We want people to go, how do they do that? And that was, that was the thing we were trying to do. And obviously, once we'd shipped Banjo, we were committed. We couldn't go back and modify Banjo after that. Uh, maybe we could have changed tack, but it, it wouldn't have been the same. We want people to go, what? And it'd be funny. Uh, and we failed. Sorry. <laughs> but it's led to some great urban legends. <laughs> God, people, rumour-mongering on the internet. I try not to read most. Are, are there any more? Yeah. Uh, hi. You are probably aware that there are uh, big decompilation projects of Nintendo 64 games, uh, like Mario 64. They finished... Banjo-Kazooie recently, and also Perfect Dark. There's even recently a working version for PC of Perfect Dark. What do you think of these kind of projects? I love the enthusiasm. I love the technical ability people have got. If they apply to us, we might hire some of them. I, I, uh, I, I know somebody out there that, that uh, has modified Donkey Kong Land, which I wrote uh, immediately before I joined the Banjo team, uh, the Dream Team, as it was. And, uh, and they've done all sorts of things in it. Um, I think it's fun. I think it's amazing. And I love the fact that people are learning about what we do. I might draw the line if they come to me and say, Paul, your code over there was rubbish. You could have done it much better like this, which was an interesting thing, actually. When we were doing Rare Replay, we, we had a, a team of people there who were going back through all of our old code. We had to dig it up, right? We didn't just take the binaries off the final that we finally submitted to Nintendo. We had the source code. We we rebuilt the source code and we modified it and, and, and put it into Rare Replay. And I remember somebody emailing me one day and saying they've just embarrassed themselves in the building. And I said, why? And he said, um, I, I was looking at your code and I burst out laughing and everybody was staring at me. Um, and it turned out it was a comment I left to one of the other end, to Chris Sutherland in, in the code, rather than the, the, the technical stuff I've done. Um, you know, I love the enthusiasm. You know, I can't condone people hacking stuff. I definitely can't do that in public, okay? Um, but I, I, I love the enthusiasm of it. Um, just don't make it too public in case Nintendo's lawyers come at you. Can we get a big round of applause for Paul Makachek? <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.